Mika. Yes. Are you ready to receive information? Yes. Hello and welcome to The Ortho Show, stories from the world of orthopedics. I'm Ben Young. I'm Mika Nichols. And on today's action-packed show, we are joined by Mr. Paul Parker. Mika, can you tell us a little bit about Mr. Paul Parker? Yeah, so I first met Paul back in, what, about 2011 when he was giving a presentation on the lessons he'd learned during his five tours in Afghanistan. Absolutely fascinating guy with a huge amount of experience in trauma. He uh, now spends time traveling around the UK and internationally, helping to pass on the lessons he's learned. He was a member of the UK's parachute regiment as a surgeon. He's worked in Bosnia, Sierra Leone, Iraq, Afghanistan, and he's seen some absolutely horrific things. But what he's learned along the way is an absolutely fascinating story, and it helps guide our teams in the UK today. Right, Mika. So I think that's it. The, the core of this interview is how Paul's learnings have become applicable not only to the military surgeon, but to the civilian surgeon also. Yeah. Unfortunately, we're seeing these these type of injuries closer to home these days as, as what is known as this asymmetric warfare. So these lessons learned are no longer just valid on the battlefield. They're valid here at home as well. So this interview was plagued uh, ever so slightly by some audio issues, but we really hope that you stick with us uh, and enjoy this conversation with Mr. Paul Parker as much as we did. Welcome to the Ortho Show, Paul. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Let's jump right in. Well, obviously your early experiences in trauma would have been in the civilian arena. Well, it was. In those, in those days, we had to send people to America and clearly not to practice, but to be taught by the best trauma surgeons in in um, and that for a long time, as we'd say, that the never been to a war as busy as you know Baltimore City Centre on a warm, busy Friday night after oh, payday. Yeah, I'll bet you. Not even but Glasgow the, uh, compares. Not even Glasgow. <laughs> yeah, well, even even Edinburgh was nothing compared. To, we would operate for thirty six hours in the trot. You'd, wouldn't be changing your underwear, you'd just simply be changing your scrubs as they got sort of more and more bloodstained and just you'd operate and then you'd be screaming at yourself, playing meatloaf on the radio with the windows open, trying to stay awake on the way home. And the good news was, that, you know, when I had a can of beer put in the end of my hand, I'd fall asleep, but I wouldn't drop the can of beer, which I think is a good skill as a, as a surgeon. But then for men, <laughs> it was places like uh, Iraq and... Even then, that wasn't so. That wasn't as busy as we thought. And then, I did five tours of Afghanistan, and then that began starting in zero one. So that's when things began to get busy. Um, not not so much in zero one. Not so much in my first tour of Afghanistan in zero six. But by the time zero eight and ten came around, that was the real war fighting, where we were beginning to learn those lessons that you know, we may come to talk about about treating severely injured injured people. Initially, it was gunshots and then it was the the improvised explosive devices the ieds oh, that's what began where, to, where was your first where was your first experience of uh, military trauma uh, interesting that was when i was i was 
you know, I, I did join the army to go to Northern Ireland. And in fact, one of my early postings was back to the surgical unit in Musgrave Park in Northern Ireland. So that was like in, in I was there in 88, I was there in 1991. And in Musgrave Park, we did get some of the people who had been shot and had been blown up. And there I was actually living about two miles from my house, yet under different circumstances and, you know, with a, a gun and stuff and getting a medal for serving in the country of my birth, the country I'd left three years three years before so that was where I first began to see these see these things but really then I suppose my earlier tours in about sort of humanitarian stuff in Bosnia and Kosovo in 1998 and 99 and 2001 that's where I saw the landmine injuries particularly amongst mm-hmm. the local population in 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 Bosnia and in in Kosovo and um, did you feel prepared at that time with what you'd done previously I think as prepared as the system could actually prepare us, we'd done some animal work with the Scandinavians on sort of simulated injuries and, you know, obviously people have mixed feelings about that. But I think some people would say that if you've practiced some surgery, you can blast injury surgery on anesthetized, properly veterinary scrutinized animals. And if that saves a soldier's life, then that's maybe perhaps some time well spent. But particularly, I suppose, by the time we got to... Iraq in zero three, and then Afghanistan in zero eight. That's when the big blast amputations started to come through, where guys and girls would come through with you know both legs and an arm and a facial injury. And if we'd seen those in the late nineties, early two thousands, we really would have had not much idea how to deal with them. But you know that sort of uh, Stalin said that quantity has its own quality and the recurring and rolling nature of the war got us to you know the sort of the, the pinnacle of, of bastion busiest one of the best trauma hospitals but consistently continually learning all the lessons from from that time paul it may be maybe a question that should i should ask later but um i'm going to ask it while it's on my mind you know you it, it's interesting you talk about how what is was essentially peacetime it, it you know, it's never fully peacetime, but the training that happened at peacetime, and they're sending people to Baltimore because they figure the gunshot wound type training is the most important thing. And then you, you know, we we get into these um, uh, this situation in Afghanistan where the the type of injury has changed dramatically. I mean, if we're lucky enough here to transition into another uh, period of relative peace. Um, I would imagine that this is going to change the, the the focus of the training dramatically. Like places like Baltimore become less important, and somehow you've got to get more of this blast injury training somehow. Yes, I mean, the, I said the, the ballistic, the gunshots that was unfortunately, unfortunately, relatively easy to access. But so I guess one of the things we did was uh, learning the lessons. Although as Aldous Huxley said, is that the only consistent lesson of history is that men do not learn the lessons of history, but mm-hmm. But we've sort of had this, we developed in 2009 what was called then the Military Operational Surgical Training Course, or the MOST course. And we got permission to actually, um, and this was a cadaver course using people who had donated their bodies to science, and we got permission to actually simulate IED injuries on on the cadavers where we would, you know, fracture the fracture the femur of the tibia and rub dirt into the wound, bend the, bend the leg round to sort of, as best we could, simulate the actual surgery that's required in that wound, but also for the team itself, have the, the surgeons, the anaesthetists 
talking to each other during resuscitation, which we think is, is important. So practicing the surgery, but also what are sometimes called the CRM, the crew resource management skills, to actually talk to each other. Like airline pilots in a difficult landing, a difficult resuscitation, difficult surgery, if you protocolize how you talk to each other, it, uh, the outcomes are, are, are generally much better. I mean, it's it's graphic stuff, right? Even to imagine me, I'm sort of looking at you as Paul's recounting this, and you think about what they're doing with those cadavers. I mean, clearly very necessary and, and can save a soldier's life. But then, you know, for me, someone completely outside of the military world, but have worked in orthopedics so long, I'm realizing uh, in kind of a scary way as you recount this, that actually the world's changed so much that you're – I mean, the odds are still very low, but your general orthopedic surgeon could come across it as we have these, you know, awful situations like happened in, uh, you know, Manchester at the the concert there, or the World Trade Center, uh, you know, and I could go on and on. But you know, we know that these these um, kind of blast injuries are happening in, uh, you know, at home, right? So they're not going to a military. Well, it's, surgeon. Inter- it's, in- it's interesting that you mentioned Manchester. I've just come from a course that we run called the Damage Control Orthopedic Trauma Skills Course, where the faculty is half military and half experienced civilian trauma surgeons and Manchester asked us to run uh, and Salford which is now a trauma centre asked us to run a bespoke course where we had um, basically 20 of their top orthopaedic surgeons civilians we ran a sort of two-day course in Manchester to medical school on cadavers on decision making on rapid blood transfusion keeping the patients warm, reading the injury, looking out for the injuries that go with some of these trauma. Uh, as if, for instance, I know if someone's legs are blown off, that's a very nasty, distractive in- distracting injury. What we know is at the time your legs are blown off, that your legs sort of split apart. And at the same time as they do that, they can do it with such force, it will actually split your pelvis apart. So you can, oh. see, that visible, you can see that visible injury of the limb amputations. And as long as you get the tourniquets on them, then that stops the bleeding. But unless you look for it, you won't know that they have actually got a what's called an open book pelvic fracture. And what we know is the higher the amputation, so if you have a single lower limb amputation, the risk of a pelvic fracture is about 14%. Once you get to a bilateral above the amputation, we know that the risk of a, of a pelvic fracture, which of course you won't initially see unless you look for it, is actually 40%. So again, it's looking at these associated injuries from our experience. Um, so h- how does yeah. that that knowledge change um, the treatment in the field when they're evacuating, or the first thing when they arrive on your table? In, in well, uh, it's, it's very clearly changed in that because of the association is that all our combat medics now carry. Well, first of all, every soldier carries a tourniquet, if not two tourniquets. So if you're shot or your leg is blown off, is everyone and you, you can use the injured guy or girl's tourniquet as well. So everyone has access to at least two tourniquets when you arrive on scene and that's just the average the average so-called soldier but once the medic arrives the medics all carry pelvic stabilization belts mm-hmm. so they're taught that any lower limb amputation gets a pelvic binder so because of that association you haven't got the x-ray in the field what you can do is that any lower limb amputation gets a pelvic binder and interesting they they find a way in the civilian practice as well we know that with the big tanks on modern motorcycles that basically if a motorcycle hits something head on, again, it's in the same fashion that the pelvis is split apart. So any motorcyclist in the UK, particularly who comes off his bike, will come in with a pelvic binder on because of that hidden injury, that open book pelvic fracture. So motorcyclist, pelvic binder, lower limb blast injury amputation, 
application of pelvic binder as well. And of course, you're putting dressings and tourniquets on the lower limb wounds, but looking for that so-called hidden injury. I, I'm really interested to understand how the first the first time people were stepping on those IEDs and coming in and you were treating them, what that treatment reaction um, looked like compared to years later when you'd been seeing this regularly. I think we were slightly lucky, and of course it was small numbers to start with, but, you know, the enemy does obviously look at the injuries that they cause and I think what they could see is that they um that the charges that they were producing I mean it, it's it's well recognized that you don't actually want the IED to kill the person right. although sometimes that's what uh, happens same with same with landmines if you have an eight person platoon and one of them steps on a landmine and is killed you've then got seven without being facetious seven angry people who are going to try and find you and and kill you but if you step in an IED or a landmine and it blows your leg off, you're but you're not killed. You're clearly lying there screaming. So one member has to give you, if not two, has to give you first aid. And then between two and four people then have to carry you in a stretcher or some makeshift poncho off the battlefield. And one's then radioing for help. So well, again, without sounding facetious, but the enemy achieves their aim more by not killing you but by maiming you and leaving. So once the people I've described is you've completely defunctioned an entire platoon. I remember from your presentations being fascinated by the idea that you had not one or two trauma surgeons working on a, on a patient. You could have maybe five. Yeah. Was that how, was that, did it start off from the beginning with that kind of response? Was no, that initially, you we, again, we learned to do that. We, that sort of serial care where you do one, then the other, then the next operation. We realized at the end of five or six hours of operating, doing tag team operating, that the patients were cold, their blood wasn't clotting, they were profoundly unwell, their lungs and kidneys were beginning to fail. So, But of course, our first surgical team was one orthopedic surgeon, one general surgeon, and that's our, our standard model. By the end, as you say, we had, you know, we had five or seven surgeons, three anesthetists, and we'd all be doing parallel operating where we'd operate all together. So, in fact, as you may remember the slide, you couldn't see the patient because of the team working. So two surgeons working on the right leg, two surgeons working on the left leg, one or two surgeons working on the left arm, a plastic surgeon maybe working on the face, and the three anesthetists just keeping the person alive. And doing all necessary surgery called damage control surgery, doing everything within about 60 to 70 minutes. So at the end of 60 or 70 minutes, what might have taken six hours, six, seven hours before, all the surgery is done. The patient's still warm, their blood's still clotting, and they're um, they're generally surviving. And mostly, 98, 99%, if they made it to Bastion alive, they would leave Bastion alive. Wow, uh, that, that's incredible. So I've spent, just, just to, Paul, I've spent years around trauma surgery, um, you know, not as a surgeon, uh, but in various different capacities. And um, never seen anything like that, you know, in the in the civilian world. It's kind of incredible. So, is this something? Was there, is there has there been a lesson there for the civilian world of approaching um, I think, multiple injuries I think, that I, way? I think there is, and we look at sort of the, for instance, what, what we know is that once a surgeon starts operating, that all concept of time and what's happening behind them is completely lost. So somebody has to be there, like a like myself, a non-operating surgeon who's actually getting 
input on more casualties coming in, what's happening with the blood stocks, when's the next flight out, you know, how many more casualties are coming in, what time are they coming, can we move them on somewhere else? So someone has to be in charge, but stepping back from the patient and, and the patient care. There is a saying that in the old days that the um, the surgeon would operate and the anaesthetist would hang on. But really, we've moved away from that. And every 15 minutes, we have a sit rep during the actual operation itself where the anaesthetist, and we learned this from the airline industry, because you can talk to people and you realize that they're concentrating so hard on the task, so-called task focus, that they're not hearing a word that you're saying. So you say, you say the name of the person, Jeff, they go, yes. You say, are you ready to receive information? And they go, yes. So now you've got their attention and it's in a closed loop, um, sort of speaking environment. You then say to them, the patients, we call it TBCs. So it's time since the start of the operation, the temperature of the patient, the amount of blood you've given, the amount of blood you have left, the how much, what their coagulation parameters are doing. And then you say, right, Jeff, what is your surgical plan? And Jeff goes, I need 10 more minutes. And then Eastus goes, you can have 10 more minutes. And every sort of 10 or 15 minutes, we have this sit reps during the surgery so that everyone's aware of what's actually happening. So they talk to each other. And that's been a real eye-opener. We've got rid of all the old dinosaurs who just say, I, when the operation's over, it's over. That, that mm-hmm. time has gone. It's a team-based approach. So, Paul, let's just take a step back from. I'm assuming in this 60 to 70 minutes that we've that that you know you've reduced down from several hours. Um, it is we're doing bleeding control. Uh, you know, it's it's stabilization. We're we're uh, you know, bleeding control. Maybe maybe just a, a stabilization of uh, serious fractures, but not uh, not beyond that. And they're going to have another. They leave Bastion and. They're, they're going to have several other operations, I'm assuming, depending on the severity yeah, of the that's, injuries. That's absolutely right. I mean, the days are trying to put everything back together. That's what takes six, seven hours. We, we borrowed this from the Navy. It's called damage control surgery. And damage fighting control. naval fighting vessels have um, damage control teams. So, so basically, the USS Cole you know, had a big hole blown in its side, but you know you can't repaint the whole ship while you're actually at uh, at sea. What you can do is you can shore up bulkheads, you can stop the leaks, you can buttress the compartment, you can stabilize. You know, you fight the fires, you but you keep fighting the ship, you keep fighting the enemy, and then when you're back in port, you can then actually do what's necessary to repaint and do. So I said we realized if you try and fix everything, that's called sometimes just definitive care that it's bad for the patient. The patient's so injured that the next surgery is is bad for them as well. So you need to do the early, aggressive, rapid surgery, damage control phase one, and then they go to intensive care for maybe a day or two, get them rewarmed, fill them up with blood, everything else. And then you take them back for what's called damage control phase three. And that's where you start more definitively fixing things like repainting the ship, replumbing all the lines in, all the taps we've turned off, we reconnect the pipes, whether it's bowel or it's blood vessels, and we fix those, uh, fix those things. So you're not adding to the initial injury by injuring them with more surgery. You're waiting till they're better from the first injury being blown up and then doing the surgery after that. Do you have a, a prefer a sort of a cutoff time, not a preferred time is a stupid question, but do you, do you have a, a cutoff time for that second surgery? Uh, I mean, are you aiming for a similar sort of 60, 70 minutes or, or does, can, does that no, no, run longer? We've then got time, and it, we, we used to time limit surgery because we didn't fully understand what was happening with the patients. But these days now, we can actually, because we understand a lot more about the physiology of patients, we can actually monitor them um, 
again, I say used to keep it 60 minutes because we didn't understand. But for instance, there's a, there's a chemical called lactate in your blood. So like, it's like lactic acid builds up when you, um, when you run too hard and you get tired. But also when you're injured, your cells are not getting the oxygen and the nutrients that they need. And we can tell from the lactate levels in your blood how injured your body is. It's pretty simple that if your lactate level is less than two, then you keep operating. If it's, le- if it's about 2.5, so the, the, the two level we call the green traffic light, lactate of 2.5 we call the amber traffic light. And it's really a question of the trend, and that's where your anesthetist repeating these blood tests. If it starts going up above 2.5, and certainly once it goes up above 3, then you've got to be thinking, right, we need to stop this surgery and take the patient to intensive care. And if you keep the lactate about 2 or under 2.5, depending on trend, you can actually keep operating because you know that it's a marker that the patient sells themselves individually are having enough oxygen and enough nutrients to keep them keep them going. That tells you the kidneys are good, the heart's good, the gut is is good. So and obviously the patient's temperature and also how much the patient's how well the patient's blood is clotting. Once the patient begins to get cold, once the blood starts stops clotting, you know, once the lactate starts rising, that's when you've got to be saying, right, let's stop again and we'll come back again tomorrow. So the word I'm hearing time and time again is team. And I'm guessing nowadays team training, not just individual surgeon training or anaesthetist or nurse, but team training is is a part of how you uh, learn these days. Yeah, I mean, we train around the cadavers. We train, we we do quite a lot of simulation training as well, where we try and pre-identify the team. And then we train them, you know, on simulated uh, injuries. We go through scenarios, ethical decision-making, but even just getting people every 15 minutes just to talk to each other as to how the resuscitation or the surgery itself is actually going. There's no place for other rotten apples or prima donnas. You know, right. you'll do what I say. That Those rules days. out. That rules out, Mika. Well, yeah, yeah, my, yeah, my yeah, lack of it. surgical training might rule me out as well. But. <laughs> well, both those things combined, <laughs> devastating blow for you. Go, but, but you're right. We do have to, um, you've got to, the needs, well, the needs of the one outweigh the needs of the many. So you have to do it for the team and the team approach, the multidisciplinary team approach. What's, in your opinion, Paul, and with your vast experience, what makes, what is the making of a really good trauma surgeon? I think someone who listens, someone who, I think most people do care about their patients. I know that you can, after a while, begin to get sort of burnout and your appreciation of um, uh, injuries. So I think you have to have good technical skill. I think you have to have compassion. But I think you also have to be aware that you're not right all the time and that you might have your opinion. But if the other five people in the team think there's something different, then you would do well to heed what they're saying. So it is being part of a team. But again, pretty much in the military, maybe it's easier. We do have a shared mental mindset of both, hopefully, our mission, what we're trying to achieve militarily and and also medically that makes it i think slightly um slightly easier um but i think compassion that shared mental mindset and then the ability to i think make rapid decisions and again i think it was colin powell said it was the um the 70 40 rule that if you have if you if you decide when you have less than 40 percent of the information you'll make the wrong decision if you wait until you have more than 70 percent of the information it'll be too late being able to make rapid decisions, not necessarily sticking to them, but someone has to decide. Because another thing we say is the longer the time you take to decide, the shorter the time you have to act. So 
thinking, working part of a team, rapid decision, and then implementing those with good sound technical skills backed up by a knowledge of the best scientific advances. So, Paul, now moving back into um, your, your civilian life, or you had an article recently on, um, and I can't remember the exact title, but it was to do with how a healthcare professional might be able to treat someone if they found, if they fa- happen to find themselves in in a situation following, let's say, a terrorist attack or something. I was wondering yeah, if you could talk about that. Yeah, that was improvised first aid techniques in a terrorist attack, and. What we worked out, I mean, obviously, if you're in a hospital with a team and stuff like that, it's all great, it's all fine. But what happens if you're at, in a bar or at your favorite restaurant, you know, with perhaps your family and you're involved as what's called a survivor bystander in a terrorist attack? We looked at what you're likely to have on you and what you can actually do to. And that's where we looked at, you know, what you can do, how you can use cling film to dress burns, how if you have... Um, you know, females present, if they've got tampons, if someone's got a gunshot wound, you could put a tampon into a gunshot wound. It expands widthways and has to plug the wound. Even just making simple bandages out of um, children's nappies and a bandage or a tape and duct tape. And what's funny, the research shows, in fact, that the nappies you buy in the supermarket are actually more sterile and have less bacteria than the um, uh, the bandages that the NHS supplies in its, um, in its outpatient departments. <laughs> But again, very simply, if you've got your know, nappy bag and you put you can put nappies on a wound and then obviously you know absorbent side down and bandaging with duct tape and we obviously with pictures of that in the actual article itself, it was published in the Emergency Medicine Journal. But how you can simply use a nappy to make what is a pretty good competent first field dressing. And then other things like how to make a tourniquet, and it's not done with a belt like you see in the movies. It's done with a um you know with just a sheet or a um uh basically a sheet and a stick or a pen or something just to make a good improvised tunicate. And then finally, unfortunately, how to deal with an acid attack and, you know, how to use perhaps contact lens solution or other fluids just to wash down someone who may have been the victim of an acid or an alkali um, attack and just with the things you, you have on you. And perhaps what you should or could carry as a healthcare professional in the streets, your so-called everyday carry pack, which might be a tourniquet, a field dressing, a pair of gloves and a head torch. And it's amazing the good you could do on a train or whatever. If you're involved in an attack, you could actually fairly adequately treat, you know, well, a patient with that. And obviously, if you could radiate calm while you were doing it, you might save more lives around you as well. Man, there's so much value in that in teaching those lessons. Of course, uh, also I think we've come up with a little product idea. They're diapers, by the way, for our American listeners, but we're, it's <laughs> yeah. already been patented by this team of three here. Um, yeah. <laughs> how do you? What What strikes me as you're telling that, and is that you know you want to get that message out to as many uh, healthcare providers, therefore potential first aid providers, as possible. How do you go about getting that reach? Well, publishing is one. In the UK, there's a um, uh, thing called Citizen Aid, where um, I guess in America it's run, hide, tell, fight back. In the UK, we just run, hide, and tell. Um, but just, there's a, I said, there's a, a program called Citizen Aid where there's cards and things you can actually carry just to actually deal with those, you know, work out the difference between concealment and cover. Um, you know, when you're under a, an attack, and obviously recent events sadly have brought this to um, to light. There's no point hiding if you'll be found. There's no point hiding in what you think is concealment, but not cover, because cover actually affords ballistic protection from actually rounds coming or bullets coming your way. So just 
even if you think for a minute, whether you're an individual or you're a, um, a hospital, as to how you would respond. And again, I've been part of the team that's written the um, how a UK hospital should respond to a terrorist attack and what you should try and do in the first 30 minutes before the first casualties arrived. It's called the UK Preparedness Guideline. That's an NHS document that we've done. But just sometimes you default to an action, you do nothing, whereas there's a lot you can do. If you can fill that 30 minutes, or that half hour, about 30 minutes of distance run, there's a lot you can actually do. And if you think about how you'll be, what you can do with what you have on you in a terrorist attack, again, five minutes spent doing that now is much better than you know time when you're actually at the event itself. Which I, th- I think in some ways, Paul's starting to bring us full circle, you know, towards what I was hoping we'd, we'd get to here today on this phone call, which is it would appear that you're quite in demand at the moment by chaps like us and, and uh, the healthcare service, you know, the NHS itself, to bring some of your lessons learned to them. What is the what is it that they're mostly trying to adopt from you or learn from you? What's the highest value thing um, that the civilian world uh, wants to, to be able to draw out of your experience at the moment? I think they want to know from <clears throat> about our military experience of blasting ballistics, how we actually deal in the first hour or so with those injuries themselves. I think our experience with blood transfusion, where in the old days people used to use CLN transfusions, we've completely moved away from that now. We realize that giving somebody saline after they're injured is actually a, has a negative effect. And actually, if someone's bled blood, uh, transfusing in with blood is the actual way forward. And then just team-based, a team-based surgical approach. Like, I guess if you ask the one final thing, it's, is that at the door of the hospital, you have the most senior surgeon and anaesthetist standing there controlling and directing who goes where. And people have talked about doing this and major incident standby and major incident declared. But actually, the time you're, the time the patients start arriving, I mean, you're in the major incident before you realise it. And we've realised that if you simply, dis- in most hospitals, clear six intensive care beds, six theatres and um, six, um, six ED resource bays, and as those patients come in, you apportion them to each of those, you'll deal with 18 casualties pretty well. And um, if you don't do that, as soon as the incident, you will not do as well and people will die. Well, Mika, I can really see why you wanted to get Paul onto the show. He's uh, a, a great speaker uh, with very interesting subject matter, no doubt about it. Yeah, what, a, what an incredible experience that guy's had. And uh, I have to say, if any of you have the chance to see him present live, the what you'll see is... Uh, I mean, it's shocking, but it, it really brings it home. Very informative. Uh, what we'll do, actually, is we'll put in the show notes his web address. You can go and see his homepage, read more about him, and links to some of the articles he's been writing. Yeah, so, so, so if people want Paul to come to their event, do some public mm-hmm. speaking, check out the show notes and, and make sure you reach out to him, right? That's right. Well, that's been the Ortho Show, another episode in the bag. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And until next time, I'm Ben Young. I'm Mickey Nichols.